Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the architect Murray Duggan, who together with Joe Morris founded Duggan Morris Architects in 2004. In 2017, Duggan Morris demerged and two distinct practices emerged. Morris & Co., a commercial practice of roughly 50 people led by Joe Morris, and Mary Duggan Architects, a studio of five focused on small and mid-scale buildings in both the private and public sector. I met with Mary in March at her home above her office in Shoreditch, where we talked about, among other things, her focus on materiality and craft in the design process, her experience in establishing her own office after 12 years of leading Duggan Morris, as well as, broadly speaking, her reflections on gender and architecture, including her experience as a woman leading a practice today, the ambiguities of sexism in professional life, and the way we tend to overthink the gendered nature of design itself. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. I noticed recently uh, uh, that you published on Instagram was a photo, a really enigmatic photo of uh, your master's thesis from the point yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just going to quote you here. Uh, you said you were obsessed and resistant to digitization. At the time, the UK births, deaths, and marriage certificates were being transferred from thick leather-bound books mm-hmm. uh, with debossed and gold foiled covers, Bible paper, and ink handwriting into sterile digital data files. And so your project was kind of based around uh, the, this like anxiety of de- dematerialization. Exactly. And somehow yeah. um, embalming these relics. Yeah, that's, that's such a really nice interpretation. I might borrow that. <laughs> but yeah, I, so when I did my diploma, the unit I was in um, uh, was run by Phil Tabor and Neil McLaughlin. And the focus for the unit was very much um, building an architecture of memory that's perhaps slow-paced, that it wasn't kind of inherently referential. By that I mean it wasn't, you know, we didn't have to always declare our interests in other buildings or cities that we'd visited or anything like that. It was more about thinking quite seriously about um, what it is to be in a space why you enjoy space, what it is to be in a library, how you carry out research. Um, so I went to look at these books in my obsession to see books, to see debossing, to see texts and names and handwritten notes, and discovered through a consultation that I, th- I must have arranged with someone within that institution in Somerset House. And I was told that over a period of time, a bunch of people were going to through, uh, what's it called, optical character analysis, a process where you can just scan text and they immediately become digital. And this process was just going to happen somewhere in a room behind doors. Mm. And then the books wouldn't exist anymore. The, The books would just be put in the archive, much like many hard copy things are now. And I thought, well, that's really sad, you know, because this is this is a day out, this is a trip for someone, this is actually quite an expanded, okay, you're just putting your name in a book, but it's quite an expanded day, or, a, or a, it's, it's not just a moment, it's, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's like your wedding day. You can't turn that into something that's, you know, ones and zeros or whatever, mm. whatever digital data is. Mm. So that's why I decided this, this, is the, this is my project, I'm going to take this and I'm going to 
convert it into a, a, a kind of archive space that always gets visited. So the idea was that every single name would have to be visited before the data could be transferred hmm. into a, a kind of digital format. It's interesting, the ideas that uh, you were first exploring uh, in your master's degree, in this thesis project in particular, they seem to rhyme so clearly with the work you're doing now. Yeah. And in particular, this interest in, in materials. Yeah. And in um, uh, the importance of, uh, I guess, physicality and embodied experience. Yeah. This kind of plants a seed for a discussion I want to have a bit later on, because at this point it would be good to just go chronologically. Okay. But materiality is something I want to get to, mm-hmm. um, and particularly the way you think through uh, model making. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that, um, after the Bartlett, uh, you were working um, for a practice called Gala for Langston Architects. Yes. And that was between 99 and 2004. Yeah. Right before you set up uh, Doug and Morris with yeah. Joe Morris. Yes. Um, and like while you were working there, was the ambition always to start a practice of your own? I didn't meet Joe until if actually I can't remember when I met Joe. But Joe isn't Joe and I didn't establish a business on off the back of having been taught by the same architects or really knowing each what each other each other's interests were, you know, beyond architecture being our common profession. Mm. You know, we go to cities together and, you know, talk about architecture, but probably the most successful practices are born of two partners who may have um, come from a a university studio with a very particular agenda that might have brought them together through for more academic reasons. We, um, I think, set up a practice really for the for the independence of it, or the idea of independence, because a practice absolutely doesn't bring independence. It's it's completely the opposite to that. How do you mean? Well, once you've set one up, and once you have staff, You're you just have such a huge responsibility, much greater responsibility to the staff that you employ, kind of the country that you're in, mm-hmm. all the liabilities. Mm-hmm which are, you know, design liability, but, but, you know, you carry everything. I remember, I always remember, and I say to my staff, actually, not many have left, but when they do leave, you're you're not going to believe the weight that's lifted off your shoulders. You know, you work in a practice for three, four, five years, and it's just like a snowball of problems. You know, mm. great, you deliver projects, they're, they're great, they're, you're proud of them, but you kind of have this period of clients coming back, there are defects, you, you, you have at least 12 months of those. And then, I don't know, just the reflections of them and what they then bring into the practice in terms of repeat details, repeat work, lots of accumulated responsibility. Mm-hmm. And when you work, when you're an employee and you leave, that's not yours anymore. That's, you leave that behind with, with the practice. It's, mm. it's their problem. Mm-hmm. They can't ring you up and say that defect or that, that issue or that DPC that went in the wrong place. It's, it's nothing to do with you anymore. Uh-huh. Um, so when you and Joe started the practice, obviously it was just the two of you. And, um, by the time you left, which was in 2017, yeah. uh, the practice had grown to 50 people. Yeah. Um, and I imagine the, the sense of responsibility compounds as the office grows. Yeah. Um, and I was looking back at a profile on Doug and Morris that was written in the AJ Architects Journal in 2011. Okay. Or maybe it was just a short interview. Um, and it seemed like, even at that point, uh, you and uh, Joe Morris had different 
ideas about um, at least what the scale of the practice ought to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, I think you had mentioned that you know no no more than twenty okay. would be the limit. Did I say that? And that <laughs> there wouldn't be the kind of energy or headspace to manage more than that. And then. Um, 2011. 2011. I saved myself six years. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Joe was saying, you know, yes, but maybe we might need to grow. And that yeah. depending on the amount of projects that are alive um, and the scale of the projects themselves, uh, the office may in fact need to expand. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting that that kind of uh, difference of view was present um, yeah. relatively early on. Yeah. And I just wonder when the practice was establishing itself, how much of a consensus was there or was that in fact important? Well, what was good about it um, was that I was always very interested in the detail, I suppose, you know, very conscious of any design or imagery that left the practice. I was always sort of pulling the reins in on that. And Joe is an incredible designer. You know, what, what bothers me about our demerger is that there's this idea that Joe was commercial and I was in the studio designing. It wasn't that, but we did fall into positions which um, used our skills to their best. Um, but he was, he was very, very commercial without being, you know, um, horrid with it. You know, he's not a kind of commercial person in the sense that he's money grabbing or he's desperately looking at the time that someone's spending on a project but he's he's very good at um, selling ideas talking about ideas not selling them in a way that um, kind of lay clients commercial clients understand so I guess what happened was he was doing that really well I was sort of reining it in and as I think set aside the fact that we were partners and then we subsequently split up. Those two dynamics within an organisation, two directors, is, is, they're very complementary skills. Mm -hmm. Some uh, a friend of mine described us as a pair that Joe always had his foot on the accelerator and I had my foot on the brakes. <laughs> Somewhere in between is, I don't know, probably some horrible material, toxic. <laughs> That's what happened in the end, but I think, um, yeah, it's interesting. I'd quite like to read that. Hmm. Um, I mean, I can just, there are only five pages here, so okay. I couldn't find it, uh, because it's probably good just to have it on, um, on the record. So yeah, it was an AJ profile from 2011. Um, I don't know if it's worth quoting it back to you, but it's there. It's just yeah, interesting. No, There's a kind yeah. of... Um, um, prelude yeah. or uh, early anticipation of um, where your interest would ultimately take you in terms yeah. of essentially downsizing and uh, what you've described as giving yourself a second chance yeah. to kind of reestablish I'm, I'm what... I'm obsessed with reflections and endings because I do think you don't really think about something fully and properly until it's over, you have this extreme condition that makes you think very hard about what it is and you know what was wrong with it or what was right about it. Uh -huh. Well, you've described um, your departure from Doug and Morris as kind of like stepping off a treadmill, <laughs> uh, and it's kind of it is an opportunity, I guess, to to yeah. reflect and think back. And you've been doing that. To some extent, quite publicly already. Um, I mean, I just watched or listened to um, a talk that you gave at the RA six months ago. Okay. Um, <clears throat> this was on this the the kind of theme was identity. Oh yeah. Um, it was does identity matter? Was mm -hmm. the kind of umbrella topic, and you gave a keynote presentation, and then you yeah. had an interview, kind of short interview with the uh, design writer Tom Dykoff afterwards. Yeah. Um, and it seemed like you kind of reached a point where you were comfortable reflecting publicly on what... Uh, yeah. I think it's all been like a... 
I'm not the sort of person, I'm not a particularly outgoing person, but I'm not, I am, I do need to talk things through out loud. It's better if I talk out loud. Mm. I'm told that I say more than I should, or, you know, I, I, I perhaps reveal too much detail sometimes. Mm. But I think architects really suffer from not saying it as it is. You know, there's, there's a, we are very, we're very, we're a very careful profession. And, you know, so I, I tell, I don't think I'm controversial, but I very, I, I, I get upset about lots of things to do with the decisions architects make about their careers. Mm-hmm. Because I think your career path in architecture is, is pre-planned by the education structure. So you have this part one, part two, part three, in between experience. So I think we we start set out in a profession which has milestones in it. And I think those milestones actually cut your, cut the process up. Mm-hmm. So you come out at undergrad, you have to get experience. And whether you're making cups of tea or doing something interesting, you're sort of, not designing anymore, probably, because your boss doesn't trust you to design anymore. Then you go into postgrad and you go crazy, or I did, design theses. You develop an agenda about something. And then you leave and you go straight into your first job to someone like me. And <laughs> I roll my eyes when I employ a part two and I say, you've got a fabulous portfolio. Where, you know, where, where next? What do you, why have you chosen me? What would you like to do? You know, what's your ideal project? And all I get is, I need to do my part three. So uh-huh. I'm just interested in working on Reba stages three plus so I can tick that box. And then what I've seen, and I think through the course of uh, Doug and Morris Architects, Joe and I worked out that the point that I'd left, we'd employed over a hundred people and what you see, the pattern that emerges is the really good ones, the ones who've come in with a fantastic design portfolio and say, I want to get my part three, and you do everything, you sponsor them, you do everything you can to get them through their part three. They come out the other side quite frustrated, and then they leave and go off and design house extensions. Mm-hmm. And it's so wasteful. Mm. I think it's so wasteful because they've, 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 They've kind of put their design thinking on hold, or they've probably got the best they can working in a practice, not saying too much, maybe second guessing, busy trying to work out what contract law, what planning law is, and doing PC or PDC, whatever they're called. PDRs. PDRs. Oh my God, that whole world of you know, and uh, and then then they then they disappear, and I think, well, now's the time that I really want you. So we started the sponsorship program because we wanted, we said, okay, we'll pay your £3,000 or whatever it was, depending on the school, and you have to stay with us for two years afterwards because mm. we want the benefit of that investment, and we also, actually, we want to see what you're really about. Mm. But this business of these great architects kind of coming out of a practice, hopefully a practice that they support, the, the agenda and mm. then s- starting again and spending whatever it takes probably took Joe and I up to five years to do not the wrong jobs but the jobs that were stepping stones mm-hmm. to the better jobs and I wonder if all of that energy could be used differently mm. you know or whether larger practices could somehow support these little private jobs uh-huh but just make sure that these characters were, you know, channeling their interests and energies into bigger ideas about cities and... It's funny, because I wanted to ask you about this. It's a piece of advice that you've given on a few occasions. Um, God, you've done great research. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The first was actually, I think, in the same AJ article. And then um, you were also... a jury member for the RIBA journal 2017 Rising Stars or something. Okay. And oh, yes. Yeah. It's an AJ thing. Oh, yeah, sorry. I said that yeah. at that event. You said? I said, 
don't set up practice. Yes, you did. <laughs> you yeah. were saying that... Um, She's seen the faces. The education system kind of sets us up to follow these milestones. Yeah. The last of which is to set out on our own and start our own practices. Yeah. And I thought, I mean, your circumstances are different because you're, you're an established protagonist in the architecture scene in London and even mm. internationally. But in a sense, you're kind of doing the same thing. I am, yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if it was a struggle for you or if it was only well, natural to set out on your own after leaving I felt Morris. that's I felt that it was the only thing I could do. So I thought actually I could just get a job. Uh, I could leave this all behind me. Deal with all of that, but dump all the baggage for yeah. the reasons I just said earlier, not carry any liability or responsibility anymore and get a job. Wouldn't that be great? I really love being employed. <laughs> I've, all my best friends are people that I've worked with. Um, you get to know people so much better as a side-by-side -side employee, mm. much more so than a director to employee. That relationship very rarely blossoms, but the relationships you built with people you're sitting alongside are just incredible. And all of my very good friends now are people that I work with at Gulliver Langston, um, Hawkins Brown and you know the usual kind of university crowd mm -hmm. there's something very level about that that just grows with you but I, I very seriously considered taking up some form of employment and then well initially I thought well, who would employ me what sort of job would who would employ me as an uh, ex-director of a reasonably well-known practice. You know, I could, I could do lots of things, but actually, uh, as a director, I, I could still use software, so I could still draw in CAD and use MicroStation, but I hadn't really used it for a number of years. Slightly rusty on things like building regulations, things that had just been, because the practice was 50, just mm -hmm. delegate, so we had someone in charge of, you know, CPD things, someone in charge of stuff. So I, I wasn't a particularly rounded architect. I guess what I thought in the end is, you know, what job, what job would I want at this stage? I've been designing independently. I've got my own mind, I've got my own agenda. There are lots of things that I was pushing at Doug and Morris and I felt that perhaps this was my opportunity to make those things happen mm. and it took me a long time to get to that point so what happened when we the demerge whilst it was announced one day obviously it didn't happen one day we decided to just split the studio so Joe ran the bigger projects that he was fronting and I ran the sort of middle to smaller projects bar a very big one that we were working on in Croydon because I was fronting that so there was this sort of slow he's got his big studio I had my small studio in the same building so I kind of got into the swing of that we didn't really consult each other anymore and then there was a whole process of working out what the demerging was about intellectual property and mm. that copyright things mm. amicably and then and that's once that sorted itself out then we kind of individually became independent and he let me become independent first which was kind of him because I think he knew that I he pretty much owned the entire Doug and Morris portfolio and I'd taken a few projects and I was relaunching myself as a new practice with a couple of projects mm -hmm. and then I thought well you know what am I going to call myself? And the most obvious thing to do was to take my name that was known and call myself my name. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it really. And now I'm hopeful. Still only almost two years. It's been hard because actually you would think having left an established quite commercial practice that I would you know, walk out the door with lots of contacts. And I, of course I have lots of contacts, but not the contacts who, with the, the commissions that I'm interested in. So there's a lot of starting again, 
about who and how I get work and how I network. Mm. But I think a much stronger idea about what I want to do with the practice. You've described um, yours and Joe's kind of personas in Duggan Morris as being the equivalent of like the back end and the front end of things. Yeah. And that um, I think the idea, or the, what I imagine is that you're kind of in the background working on design, Joe's out front securing uh, new contacts and new clients and new projects. Yeah. And so to leave uh, that dynamic and become the person that needs to be at the front now. Um, like what, what has that been like for you? I imagine you're being pushed far outside of what was comfortable for you. Yeah, there's definitely, I did have to step outside a comfort zone. Um, I don't network in the same way that Joe Morris networks. So. I still hate walking into a big room with a whole load of people, even if I know most of them and I know a lot of people now, it's not really my scene. So I, my strategy is to find people that I genuinely want to know and go out to lunch with them. I'm much better in a one-to-one -one mm -hmm. situation. I, I, don't, I think there is this kind of fallacy, if that's the word, that you need to network your ass off and I don't think you do. I think you need, you can be very, very strategic about it. Mm. You know, talk to people about what you actually want to do. And I'm, I've been doing more of that recently. And I think you've just got to be lateral. You don't have to find a client at MIPIN. You don't need to lead directly to the commissioner. That's not what it is. You might find someone who might enable a conversation with that commissioner or just might promote you in a different way because they like you or they're genuinely interested in your work. Mm. Um, I want to talk more about um, this idea of um, Mary Duggan Architects being a second chance to imagine like what an architecture practice yeah. is or what it ought to be for you. Mm -hmm. I mean the obvious changes in scale Yeah. Um, and this kind of intimacy or familiarity or like for lack of a better term, like realness in terms mm -hmm. of your relationships with clients. Yeah. And then there's this other thing which has to do with like making stuff mm -hmm. and craft and material. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wondered if we could talk about that for a bit. Okay. So you have, you've set up this, this artist in residence program. And so far you've had a ceramist in named Kara Guthrie. Um, who was making um, vessels and yeah. um, she was throwing pots in the office while you guys were working. Yeah. Um, Nigel Peake, who's an author and a poet and an illustrator, whose work I think um, that he produced while he was here uh, is forthcoming. Yeah. And then most recently Anton Burdikov, yeah. who as I understand it is a sculptor. Yeah. Uh, amongst other things. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, like, because I've heard you say that you don't understand the word collaboration. Yeah. Or what that actually is in the context well, of architecture. Yeah. What you were hoping to get out of inviting these uh, artists in. Well, I just don't like the word collaboration because I think for me, collaboration means two people sit alongside each other and they literally feed each other you know put food in each other's mouths and out at the end of it comes a project that is a, a, a joint project you've both made it thought it kind of done it together done the dance but and the re and, and you know we do it with engineers we've always done it with engineers we collaborate but but it's, it's a very particular thing when you talk about collaborating with another architect and I never I just never really got it you know it's, it's not really about authorship in the sense that one architect very always wants to own something and then mm. sort of push you away when you're stepping on their toes too much but it's really kind of an understanding about whether you're gaining intelligence or actually compromising 
the strength of an idea that might exist if it was a single entity. Hmm. But I don't know whether that made any sense. So, so what I, I felt about the... What I wanted to do with the residency was to have someone in the office experiencing the office, the pace of the office, the conversation in the office, witnessing the way we work, but doing their own thing. So we've got projects, you've got projects, and we might just come together and have a conversation about something. But in that conversation, uh, there might be ideas that will feed your own disciplines. Two different things, two different objects, two different projects, but just some fairly abstract ideas. What I like about the way the uh, the artist's work is presented on your website is that we see like the architect's fragments, mm-hmm. study models, casts of facades, yeah. etc. And then we see the artist's or the craftswoman's vessels, and somehow they're interchangeable. Yeah. Or it's it's implied or it's insisted that these things are the same yeah. somehow. Yeah. And and yet it's not clear exactly beyond maybe the detail you've explained and it could never have been clear at the outset. No. But there's a kind of faith in the alchemy that proximity yeah. to someone making something in a different way. Yeah. could create for an architecture practice. Yeah. Um which in and of itself is really exciting. Yeah. Um, I guess to stay on the topic of material, mm-hmm. the way your work is presented, or the way you frame the practice, mm-hmm. is um, that it's a practice that fabricates and yeah. tests mm-hmm. and iterates um, physically. Mm-hmm. That there are models made to think about what a building could be. Yeah. Um, before, um, and this may not be true, but this is, this is kind of implied, yeah. before a lot of work is done digitally. Mm-hmm. And there's a real conspicuous lack of computer imagery. Yeah. That um, there are very few renderings on the website. Mm-hmm. And what's foregrounded are these models. Yeah. Which are very beautiful and very material. Mm-hmm. Um, I just kind of want to read out a few examples of the kinds of materials you've been using. Because I think even just reading a list, uh, something kind of special happens. So um, wax and color pigment, mm-hmm. acrylic structural model with asparagus fern, yeah. <laughs> um, cast spice impregnated wax column and color pigmented concrete base, pigmented and aggregate plaster, <laughs> cardboard and Vaseline, Cast jasmineite, <laughs> walnut and lacquered acrylic block, distressed gold leaf, half-inch brush. Uh, there's something really interesting about the way if you just isolate the kind of materials you use in these model studies, mm-hmm. um, there's very clearly a fascination with materiality that, uh, you know, as we discussed before, is maybe, um, maybe originated in your early student work. Yeah. Um, and so, I actually don't know what it, where I was planning to go from there, except to say that, like, this is quite uncommon. Yeah. Um, is it uncommon? I think, so I, I've just got, I, I mean, my reaction to Doug and Morris, or Morris and Co. now, which I, I think is a great practice, I completely understand it, um, was that... We did lots of things. You have to do iterations. You have to say to whoever, I've got a hundred options here and I've chosen this one. Somehow you need to prove that you're working, even though you've probably, your second iteration, or probably more often than not your first, is the right one. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot, and I think lots of practices do that, and they, I think we've fallen into this trap of having to play out a process that isn't a, a genuine architectural, but 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 at, at Doug and Morris there was a lot of making, but it was just not somehow not as important as the stuff that you needed to present to a client to then have to present to the bank and prove that you know there was a kind of 
de-risking process. You know, this architect has tested 10 options and therefore, you know, we've, we've, we've done a really good job here and the one we're taking forward is the right one. That sort of weird thing that happens and mm -hmm. then you have a report that's, you know, deep. Mm -hmm. But not deep. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually... Thick. Thick, yeah. <laughs> but so I... What I wanted to do was bring all that work into the foreground. And of course I have PCs and I use CAD and uh -huh. we do CGI's. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to do quite a lot of those bad ones because a client just wants to see the work in that medium. But I, I genuinely have brought it into the foreground, not for the sake of a brand at all, but just to make sure that we're looking and focusing at the right things. Because mm. it, yeah, it seems like, to me, it, it, maybe it's not uncommon for practices to work iteratively with models, mm -hmm. but it is uncommon, I think, for a practice to foreground uh, the material and mm -hmm. the kind of abstraction of a model yeah. over that of a CGI. Yeah. Because what I meant to say was that like, as a culture, we're so hungry for that type of imagery now. Yeah. The CGI. Yeah. The kind of evocative, slick and um, aspirational yeah. image of a near future. Yeah. Because that's interesting. Because earlier you said that the models that I make are real, and I think they're, I think they're real, but actually I think it's the imagery, and the, you know, the picture perfect or photo perfect images that our commissioners see as real. Mm -hmm. I think the models are unfortunately the abstract thing, but I think they're, for me, the models are the... So I'm, we make them to process, and we also make them to represent something. So we might have been down a journey, and we, I feel quite strongly in-house that for every single project we need something that becomes the benchmark. It's made of stuff, whether it's distressed gold leaf or plaster or jesmonite and each of those materials allow us to do something quite specific give it a very sharp surface a very rough surface or introduce some pigments that we're quite interested in and it's so it's it's i think you can get to a i don't want to call it a reba stage but i think you can get to a design concept two plus and you can just keep taking out that model and putting it on the table and you can say, this is what it's about. This is the material that we made with whatever. We took some pigments, we put them in a pestle and mortar, and we added them to this mold. The mold, making the mold was a conversation, making the material was a conversation, whether it's a heavy building. All of those things, I think it's really important that they manifest in one model. Mm. And that's the idea at that point, you know, the essence of the idea doesn't, doesn't get lost. It's, a, it's an important piece of work. So the shelf downstairs is full of those. We, I do find myself picking them up, coming back to them. And, you know, most of them don't actually look like buildings, they, mm. but they're, they're a representation of an idea about a building. We could change tack now and talk about uh, a subject that 
I feel like I'm almost not qualified to investigate with you, but also feel obligated to nonetheless. And that is of being a woman oh. in architecture. Here it comes. Yeah, yeah. right. And so <laughs> Why my, do men feel awkward about asking me? I don't question? feel awkward about oh, okay. it. But I just feel like am I the person to have this specific discussion with you? And I guess Okay. Yeah. Um why not, actually? Yeah. But um yeah, so my anxiety around having having a uh, having a conversation about gender with you is that um, I'm aware that it it has become quite a thing. Quite a thing. It can be dangerously hackneyed or very quickly condensed into a set of talking points. Yeah. That I'm totally averse to. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's like it's a really important discussion yeah. to have. Yeah. Um, and so I guess just to, to start, how do you situate yourself in this discussion about women in practice now? I find it a very awkward subject, actually. Um, I think, you know, in, there is a movement in the back, you know, and it's, it's important that I don't shy away from this issue. Um, I've had some very awkward moments over the last, let's say, four or five years where I've been specifically asked to be on a panel because they're trying to balance the male-female gender. And that's been the first detail that's come out, not because I think you're a great architect, but because, you know, we're all very focused now on, on dealing with getting the balance right. Mm -hmm. So that, that I, and that's awkward. And I think lots of people have cottoned on to the fact that you know, there's some sort of strange behaviour out there just to get things right. Um, I think there are lots of people out there championing this campaign who are who are not feminists. You know, who are quite stereotypical in their their kind of within their own gender. Mm -hmm. So I think there's something very odd going on. Um, I've never felt discriminated in any way. I think that's my, a very strong feeling I have. I'm one of four girls. Dad was an only child. He really pushed all four of us through education. So I'd, I've never had this feeling that, you know, there's a man sitting right in my family that's supposed to do better. It's not really been a, a thing for me ever. My parents didn't ever say to me, you know, you can be great. There wasn't this idea of that a woman being successful was a problem. It just wasn't something that was spoken about. My dad had an ambition for all four of us to do something. So it's never been a thing <laughs> in, the sen in the way that you know, I, I work with and have employed females who said, my mum always said, be strong and, you know, mm. do this and do that. And mm -hmm. I think there's a lot about um, there's a lot about women working in architecture in lots of other professions that the women in those professions really feel that they've made it. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal that they're there in the first place. But I, I honestly, I, I don't, I've never felt that. Mm. that. That's the thing I was going to say about mm. the, the kind of backdrop of these probably very stereotypical men, you know, so my whole family are tradesmen, plumbers, plasterers, builders, the like, farmers, Irish. And so I understand old-fashioned men mm. <laughs> and old-fashioned men who have a particular view about women are different to male chauvinist pigs and I've sat in meetings with women in a kind of situation where they're feeling that they're being patronized by a male chauvinist pig and I've actually said the words I don't think this man is. I think he's just got a very particular idea about how things should work, because that's where he's come from. You know, don't, mm. don't, don't assume that because someone might 
say something about, I don't know, what you're wearing, that that's, that man is extremely sexist. sexist. He's yeah. just probably thinking genuinely that he's passing you a compliment. That's it. And his father did it, and the people in his family did it, and you, you shouldn't immediately run away and say he's sexist because he's commented on my whatever. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm more forgiving, maybe I'm naive, I don't know, but it's not... And I've had problems with men. Every woman has had problems with men, and lots of men have had problems with women, whether they've been preyed on or all those sorts of horrid things, and which is kind of part of life. Um, I've seen women patronise men, I've seen men patronise women, and in, definitely in some of those cases it's been an issue with... It's, it's a clearly a sexist problem, someone with a, an issue, but most of the time I just think that's someone's background. That's, mm. just, that's just the way they've behaved and to some degree you've got to accept some of it so you can deal with things that are bad. <laughs> so there are bad things, very bad things. Um, so like to, to what extent do you see yourself as a woman architect versus an architect? I see myself as an architect. I think um, or I've been told that some of the imagery I'm, I don't know, I post on Instagram is very kind of feminine. Mm. Um, I don't really know what that means and I don't know if, you know, somebody said that was a man and I don't, I wouldn't immediately call them sexist, but Maybe that's true. Huh, it's interesting. I think there are, th I think, and I, th I, don't, I, I think it's fine. I don't think we can de-genderize everything. There is, you know, I, I'm the sort of female that would say, I, I think men have different brains. I think that's probably will change, but I think men really have to play out things. It takes a very, very long time. And lots of women will say, I went into a meeting, we embarked on a debate about something and I, had a very strong feeling it would end up, it would conclude in this way, and actually it did. But there's a bit of a, a very typical man, a very probably a very stereotypical man, behaves in a certain way. It's kind of quite sporting, which is a very different game in a room with one woman. When that's when it is a room 50-50, the conversation tends to be less about winning. It's probably cuts. It's, it's, a, it's a much faster debate about something. Mm. But I think that in itself has just come from a kind of genderized society that isn't, is less shared, you know, roles aren't shared. There's, I think that we're probably, I don't know, 50 years off a, a complete balance. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you should. No, yeah. I think it's. I don't know if you should play that one back. Yeah. <laughs> It's a really hard thing. It is difficult. Um, yeah, I find it challenging too mm. to have a sensitive conversation about something like gender. Yeah. Um, that also doesn't transgress in some way. Yeah. Um, and the obverse of that would be like the kind of tokenistic conversation. Yeah. That uses the proper formulated yeah. words, words and, yeah. and talking points. There is definitely an overriding problem which is to do with people in positions of power uh -huh. and I don't think that is it's all men at the moment who are getting an absolute pasting uh -huh. but I think that's because mostly men are in positions of power huh. I think uh, you know women in positions of power just become I don't know they just get I don't know, ego takes hold, become, I don't know, quite narcissistic and just mm. start to behave in a very particular way. Mm. You know, I've seen it with people who've become well-known in smaller circles. It's, there's, there's a bit of, it's not arrogance, but there's a confidence that kicks in that seems to allow them to treat people in a different way. Mm. You can see, I see young, I've seen much younger architects go through that kind of you know, I'm making it, I'm quite modest, and then suddenly, bam, they turn into these 
strange people who uh-huh. love themselves. <laughs> right. So, like, the, you know the, this I mean. idea that power is irrespective of gender and that it, it corrupts yeah. regardless. But regardless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I just wonder if there's other things to quickly touch on on this topic. Um, because I feel like. Um, I said to a guy in my office, I really liked his shirt the other day. Uh-huh. And I just thought, you know, there's that, what is it called, the shitty men in architecture list. Right. And I was just like, oh my God. Would you be on am that I list? I'm going to be a shitty woman in architecture list in, I don't know, 10 years' time. Because uh-huh. <laughs> I've said, I don't know, some things are just innocent and I'm saying it and I don't have an issue with it. Mm. I'm just having a conversation mm. about someone wearing a nice shirt. You know? Yeah. It's interesting that what it sounds like is personally, based on your upbringing and the people um, you're surrounded with, yeah. um, are surrounded by, like your family always, or never really treated gender as an issue, and therefore for you growing up, um, it wasn't kind of broached one way or another. No. If you wanted to do something, you could do it. Yeah. But it's not like... Um, the obstacles were necessarily laid out. No. Um, but I think other people would probably be interested in a conversation about like systemic mm-hmm. or structural gender inequality and the way the cards are kind of stacked against mm-hmm. women, not only in architecture, but in any profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and that women aren't given a platform or a voice in the same way that men are. Yeah. Um, and that some kind of parity or balance yeah. is required. Yeah. Um, what I've heard quite recently um, that, that's in line with this conversation is this idea that um, we, we need more women talking about architecture publicly yeah. and presenting. Yeah. And there's a big push and interest in the culture now to hear from like a woman-led practice like Mary Duggan Architects. Yeah. Um, um, so what am I, well, I wonder what someone who's interested very specifically in that would make of my practice? And would I, you know, am I, I mean, I've, I've obviously got this sort of strange, I'm not with a male anymore and We've both gone to do things that, you know, one is commercial, the other isn't. We're wanting some more. And it's, it's it really interesting, like, how archetypal that divide seems to be. Yeah. Because Morris and Co., led by Joe Morris, are known now as a commercial practice. Yeah. Still, obviously, design-led, but much larger in scale, yeah. much more the kind of... Um, meeting clients at MIPM type yeah. practice, or I guess to, to phrase that differently, much more kind of a, a practice that um, would work the crowd. Yeah. Um, y- you've taken the smaller projects with you, have what appears to be a, a more vested interest in like the sensitivity to materials, yeah. to uh, these ideas about memory and experience, mm-hmm. for example. And these feel, I'd say, archetypal, but also like to a popular audience, kind of maybe cliche. Do you think? Okay. But I don't, I don't think that's true. It's just like as I'm saying this, I'm wondering what people might think. Yeah. As yeah. I kind of characterize that yeah. difference. And so maybe let's kind of steer now back to the topic of um, color, because I wanted to ask okay. you about. So a lot of your buildings are pink. <laughs> Yeah, actually, one only one is pink. But I think and that is for going some, ahead. That's what? That's not going ahead. Oh no! <laughs> Somehow I associate yeah. that color with your practice, though. Yeah. And I guess formally with Doug and Morris Architects, and most prominently, prominently through the R Seven building in yeah. Kings Cross. Yeah. Which uh, coincided so neatly with the rise of millennial pink which mm-hmm. is like a color that's um, swirling around in the culture right now yeah. to kind of define yeah. a generation or attach itself to a particular uh, age group. Yeah. But I mean, it's funny, like, that 
picture you posted about your thesis project. It was wrapped in pink bubble wrap. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I don't know. There's <laughs> you talk about your pink formica table. Charles and Holland who said mm, said something about the pink bubble wrap. Like, what was more important, the pink bubble wrap? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to make too much about the color pink, but I feel like to to the point that a friend of yours made about um, the work being more feminine. Yeah. Um, like, do you think about the way that? work can embody an expression of gender, or is that just baloney? I I... Do you know, sometimes I think in architecture that you just can't explain everything, and I think we are obsessed with justification. You know, we're lots of architects, I'm not one of them that just would find an amazing historic building and pull it apart and want to understand it and want that understanding of it to inform their work. Mm. And I, I just don't think you need that all the time. I think we've forgotten that we're intuitive, you know, that you can go to a site and decide quite instantly what material it should be. I'm not talking about pink now, but you can decide whether it should be made of something, what the right material, whether it should feel or be heavy, whether it should be a very kind of tectonic, very light piece of work. Mm -hmm. I think we do that, but, and I, I think that's fine, just, just to have a, a kind of strong idea about something and then take it away and explore how you might deliver it. So quite efficiently go straight into the materials, the mm -hmm. quality of the building, mm -hmm. not not overplay the process, but just just be instinctive. Mm -hmm. And of course, you have to explain it. But some things, you know, you just do. They're knee jerk. Mm. Mary, thank you so much okay. for your time. All right. <laughs> <laughs>If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.